Hi everyone and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name's Steve Ingham. I'm a performance scientist by trade and training, having helped many elite athletes reach their peak through the application of scientific principles over the last 25 years. I'm also the co-founder of Supporting Champions, which applies the many principles of performance that we've learnt from sport, business and education to those hoping to find a better way to create performance. So we're literally supporting champions, but we're also supporting and championing people who are looking for that breakthrough. So the idea behind these podcasts is to explore the science, the art, the purpose and the origins of high performance. And I'm keen to discuss these concepts with the people who've achieved at the highest level, those people who've been a driving force in making high performance happen, and from those who've researched and explored aspects of performance in real depth. And so on to this week's episode, and I talked to someone I've known for a great deal of time, worked closely with Dr. Barry Fudge, the head of endurance at British Athletics and lead scientist for many outstanding endurance athletes like Samo Farah. And Barry has a PhD in exercise physiology, which uniquely undertook the majority of his work in East Africa, working with richly talented Kenyan and Ethiopian teams and athletes which at the time included athletes such as Haile Gabri Selassie and Kenanisa Bikilis, true legends of distance running. And Barry was actually my postdoc researcher back in 2007 and 2008. And despite this, uh, he's gone on to achieve some incredible things. Uh, firstly, as a physiologist, as the key architect of Mo Farah's transformation from an also-ran to a consistent and outstanding racer, a world-beater, and then being promoted to head of endurance with a much wider remit of creating the conditions to nurture success in British athletics. Barry actually spoke at our 2017 conference, which you can also catch up on on the podcast. Uh, He gave a great talk in that session. But in this discussion, he shares in more depth some of the many challenges that he has working with athletes, setting out the goals, setting out the the, the long-term vision, working with coaches, and the, the pressures that come of working in the arena in track and field, and explores his purpose and the whys of why he does what he does. Champions, I'm joined today by Barry Fudge, Dr. Barry Fudge, Head of Insurance from British Athletics, physiologist, coach, manager. What, what are you, Barry? What are you now? <laughs> um, well, th- thanks for having me, Steve. This is really cool. Um, so, so my job does vary day to day. It does go from um, managing a team of practitioners, which are scientists. It goes to managing coaches. It goes to managing athletes. It goes to organising the next training mm-hmm. camp. It, it's setting the budget for the next next year. It's meeting stakeholders in the sport that are important for endurance. So it, it is a very varied things that I do on a daily basis. But my background is science, and most of the way I work in my brain is still like physiology. So. You know, I'll try and rationalise stuff in a scientific way or I'll, yeah. I'll break problems down in a scientific way. So I'm, I'm probably describing myself now as I'm still a scientist, but I've got lots of different things going on at once. Okay, so there's an element of, of directing performance. You're yeah. ushering people, you're ushering resources, yeah. channelling it. Architect, can we architect? Y- yeah, I mean, I think it is kind of like that though, isn't it? It's like it's kind of saying, this is our goal. And I'll, I'll apply my science brain to say, let's break it down into these components and concentrate on the things that are important and get rid of the things that aren't. And that's probably what you do in science, isn't it? It's, mm. This is our hypothesis and this is what we're going to do. And we'll look at it in a year's time and decide whether we got it right. Or, so I think, yeah, 
you, you, you kind of got this, this is what we're trying to achieve, this is how I think we're going to do it. Yeah. Break it down, determinants of success type thing. Yeah. Um, Almost like an engineer as well as a scientist yeah. in that sense. Yeah. Mm. So it, it's, it, there's lots going on and the, and the thing for me that's been really interesting over the years is just how much does go into programs, athletes, coaching, um, long term, short term. It's, it's quite fascinating the different components that fit in. Because I think as, as a as a practitioner, you can get brought into this idea that it's your world, your little bubble, and you don't really see the bigger thing. So that's the bit that's been fascinating for me, is, is being dipping into everyone's world, seeing how it all comes together, and trying to ar- be that architect that kind of brings mm. it all together is quite is interesting. So you've been part of teams, you've led, you've managed, you've coached multiple world medals with Mo mm. Farah and, and now other endurance lights, Laura Muir and so on. Um, so let's take, take you back to sort of mm. the, the, the early, early stages. Where did it start? How did you get into sport? Like, so truthfully, um, I, I, I still don't really know what I want to do. And I've, uh, as I was growing <laughs> up, I was always one of these people that, that didn't really know what I was going to do. But the one thing I always really enjoyed and was passionate about was sport. And I think for me, I kind of crystallised a bit, and I don't know whether you'll remember this, but the British Lions used to bring out mm. a, a video after each of their tours. And I remember watching that and being like, wow, imagine being part of a team like that or being some of the support staff or whatever. And I think for me, that was the bit that really you know, got me thinking about, I wonder how you get to that point right. of you know, either playing for your country or supporting the people who are type thing. And um, I actually went to uni on the basis of doing a, a, a different, uh, a few different degrees before I actually got to the one that I ended up doing. So I, I went to uni to do politics, I went to uni to do HR, I went to uni to do maths, chemistry, uh, and eventually ended up doing sports science. Because I always came back to sport, sport, sport. Um, so that, that's when my journey started. I went to Glasgow University, done sports science, physiology and sports science. And from then on, it was just a journey through um, being kind of inspired about human performance and physiology and endurance running for me was the uh, kind of a, the, the top of the tree in terms of human performance. So I was always really kind of bought into that. Mm. Um, and yeah, so that's where it started. That's, that's where it went from. And I was really lucky at the end of my degree to start doing a PhD in endurance running, which took me off to Kenya and places like that and started to see what real kind of performance was and uh, perhaps were the kind of things that physiologists might be able to do within distance running and so on. So, uh, and it just rolled from there, really. So, I mean, that's quite an unusual thing for a yeah. PhD student to experience, going to Kenya and working with the best endurance yep. runners in the world. And yeah. um, looking back in terms of defining moments yeah. for making your own break, yeah. um, how conscious were you at the time that? oh, this is quite unusual, this might stand me in good stead going I, forward. I wasn't really, to be right. honest. Yeah, because I came into an environment, a lab, where this is what they were doing. So it was normal practice to them. So it wasn't like, we're going to have a conversation now that says, this is one of the best mm-hmm. athletes in the world, and you, you need to understand. It was just like, yeah, we just get on with it, and everyone turned up. So I never really had that um, that kind of conversation that said, this is, this is amazing. It was just like, oh, we go to Kenya, and we do this, and we do that, and it's just part of what we do. Mm-hmm. So that, that was very much what I, what I ended up doing and, and it literally was some of the best athletes on the planet. One, one of the athletes, which is, I was talking to 
Professor Andy Jones about this last week was Elliot Kipchoge, mm. who was in my PhD studies, right. uh, who's now running the Subterra Marathon and all the rest of it. It's, mm. That's the sort of people that that I was exposed to quite early, um, and, and not even really realising to a massive degree what you were doing and what you were part of. Um, so I was completely oblivious to it. And so you had the chance to work with Kenanisa Bikili, yeah. Gabri Selassie, and, and um, early on you were you're taking measurements on them and in terms of establishing rapport and engaging mm. with them uh, and getting along, how did that go? Yeah, I mean the work I'd done in Ethiopia was mainly with Kenanisa, um, and, and again, they're just human beings, so mm. they were actually more um, interested in a, a white man coming from Britain with science and all the rest of it, and what's this guy all about, as opposed to me seeing them as runners. Because right. most of these guys just see themselves as they're just humans and they're just runners, like they just run. What do you mean? You, you can't run a six minute mile, all right? Yeah. Like that's the way they see themselves. Um, so they, they were, someone like Kenny Nisa was very interested in what that world could offer him as an athlete. Is there something there that I don't know about? Um, and the interesting story with him was he, 2007, he got beat at the World Cross Country in Mombasa. And for him, that was the stimulus because he basically couldn't cope with the heat. And so for him, that was the stimulus to look at, um, well, is there something out there around preparation and heat acclimation and so on that I need to look at? And that that's where we got our break as a group. We were like, right, we can do this. We can, you know, we, we turned somebody's bathroom into a heat chamber and, right. you know, found a treadmill in Ethiopia and a generator to make it work and all this kind of stuff. It was, it was mad. Mm. But, you know, the result was he went on from there and won the, the World Championships in Osaka for the, uh, in the heat. Mm. And that was the, the kind of, that was my first real taste of trying to do something at that level that was going to impact on performance. Uh, and of course, I was a PhD student, so I had my supervisor and all the rest of it to start yeah. that kind of process. So. That, that sounds quite an organic, spontaneous. Yeah. Here is an opportunity, and unless we seize it, then not only is the athlete not going to be as well prepared, yeah. but, but we're going to miss out on an opportunity to influence from a scientific point yeah. of view. And, and to learn a bit from somebody that was a world record holder, mm. 10,000 and 5,000 Olympic champion, and, and then went on to be double Olympic champion the year after again, to get that, just that, that hu human perspective of somebody operating at that level, what their life's like on a day-to-day -day basis, how are they training, how are they recovering, how are they eating, uh, was was just, it, it was different than any other kind of apprenticeship, if you like, mm. of, of sport. Um, and probably in real contrast to some of the things professional athletes in the Western world would approach training and recovery. A lot of these guys were doing it completely different, but still getting results. So mm. It was quite fascinating. You've mentioned that human aspect a couple of times yeah. already, and that um, the sense of, of the way they do it, not just what they're doing, yeah. um, and being fully considerate yeah. and attentive and adjusting your strategy yeah. based on what you're hearing and yeah. seeing. And I think um, for me, I think it's very easy to forget that they are humans and so are the people that work with them as well. Mm. And I think um, as, a, as a physiologist or a scientist or whatever, even as a coach, it's very easy to get caught up in the numbers and the, well, what about this? And you thought about that? And all those types of conversations when sometimes they just want people who are on their team and who are there to support them and mm. provide information and data at the right time. Um, and I think most people are just looking for that support. Whether, whether you're a coach, you're an athlete, or you're a support provider, you're just a human being 
with feelings and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, and I think the best practitioners have got that ability to to understand the human aspect of what they're doing. And so how do you manage that if you're a scientist mm. and you're looking for the the numbers and the, the measurement and the certainty and objectivity yeah. to what you're doing? How do you manage that in your own? I think my apprenticeship in Africa where I was seeing people who were non-scientific were probably doing compared to what the science would say, the wrong things around recovery and training and all the rest of it, made me come into my, the world that I'm in now with a kind of view that was, actually, you maybe can do it differently, and it doesn't need to be so definitive as to what the science is. There are different ways to doing it. And mm-hmm. actually, if you sit down and look at a problem and try and understand it a bit different, as opposed to just coming at it with numbers and scientific papers and so on, it's like, people, there's lots of different ways that people do things. Okay. And part of that is just understanding how they get there. So how did um, Anelia Kuchogi win a world championship in 2003 as a 19-year-old, despite not doing any of the right things by scientific standards? That's the view that I came at was, how do you understand that? So that that changed my approach to working with people. It was like, we don't need to be so intense with them. Let's just understand them, understand them as a person. And if there is something we can do to help them, great. But actually, they might be fine just doing it the way they are. Yeah. Um, okay, so a formula that serves one champion quite well, yeah. or it's minimizing the, the the chances of failing for one person might not cut yeah. and paste to, to yeah. another. That might it might over the average it might, mm. which is what most of your scientific studies will probably mm. do. But when it comes to that individual at that level, um, having a more kind of rounded approach to how you might deal with some of the problems and situations. Mm. Uh, maybe trying to understand it a bit more before just being right that the numbers are this and the data says that and I've read this scientific paper last weekend and it said that you should do this um, I think that's that's the approach I've always taken it's a bit more okay so being almost being comfortable in uncertainty and yeah. flexible ways of working yeah. I think there's a tendency with a lot of people who they look at something and they feel that they have to change something very quickly so they'll come in and they'll have a conversation with a coach or athlete and they'll be like, aha, I've got it, I can see where you can, right. you can improve here. Whereas my approach has always been, um, let's, let's look at it over a period of time and make small adjustments here and there, and then we might try and make a big change once we've okay. understood this a bit better. Um, and so that would be my suggestion to most people is, don't just look at it straight off, maybe try and understand it a bit first. Because mm. uh, people do get to the top of sport despite some of the madness that might go on um, and trying to understand that is a big part of it. So when you're looking back and trying to understand your own journey, what, yeah. what are some of the other key defining moments? For, for me, um, for, for me, a massive key uh, milestone for me was when I started working for the EIS, uh, when I came on research physiologist and you were my boss mm. and I'd never been exposed to anything other than the academic world and a couple of athletes that like a peculiar or whatever. Yeah. I, wasn't, I, I wasn't exposed to a system, uh, a, an organisation that was trying to support athletes, science, medicine, coaching, whatever it might be. So I, I had to learn a, a whole different way of how the system works and, yeah. um, you know, priority levels. <laughs> a degree in politics. Yeah. You've got to get back and do that. Yeah. <laughs> that was, for me, a real key milestone of how this, how this system works in the UK. Yeah. Um, so I, I learned a huge amount in that year, huge, huge amount. And then I actually went off to Scotland for a year and done the multi-sport stuff, which 
again was, you know, at the time it wasn't particularly what I wanted to do, but it, I learned so much from working in a number of different sports, um, challenging my brain to think outside of distance running or whatever. Uh, and I think, again, that was another systems approach to how do we systematically try and support athletes and coaches. Mm. Um, so I think the initial job at the EIS was the real kind of milestone. And then mm. when I came back to the EIS in 2009 to take on the, the role as physiologist, that was another kind of big break because it was, you know, they just started an altitude program and physiology was key. Uh, and somebody like Amofara was beginning to come onto the scene in terms of uh, priority basis and so on and 2012 was around the corner so it was like a big opportunity mm. so I always say that was a, a big break point there um, that happened. And, and that's where um, you sort of sense that opportunity of being able to not only harness a talent like someone like Mo but, yeah. but you had to have a number of crunch yeah. moments yeah. in terms of deciding to focus the, the resources yeah, and so yeah. on. I mean, most of it was, to be fair, directed by our head coach at the time, Charles Van Comey, who was, who was very much a believer in focusing resources on those athletes that can do something. And um, You'll know this with Jess and the way you approach Jess, with the Paul Bryce and yourself and all the rest of it. Uh, Mo was kind of my project that I was given, this is your, this is your main focus, mm. albeit there's lots of other stuff going on and you need to support that person and that person, but he's always number one. Um, and again, another kind of learning about, you know, at that level, that's kind of what it takes, is that real focus and clarity of purpose for everyone mm. in the team. And so when you look back over that particular, that early phase of that starting to get off the ground, bloom and blossom and start to yeah. find results and so on, what are the key moments that were able to accelerate that? Um, I, think, I think for me, I mean... A big part of it for me was working with a coach that was willing to work with science. So mm. Alberto Salazar was somebody who was well known for wanting to work with science. So he was very, he was always engaging in conversations, asking lots of questions. For me, that's a big part of it. So I think if if he wasn't that type of person, that relationship probably wouldn't have worked. Um, I probably wouldn't have supported more to that degree, and and you know the journey might have been completely different. So I think a big part of it is your circumstances, you know. Mm who you're working with, the people that you're engaging with, and so on. So I think I, I think it's a bit of a serendipity of the people you get in front of you. Okay. There's a bit of that. Um, but I think for me, I, I was early on in my kind of job role with athletics, I was going on team. So I went to the World Championships. It was my first championships that I went to as a team coach, which was mm. bizarre. And who goes to a team champ, uh, World Championships as a team coach for the first one? And I think I, I began very quickly to understand that relationship between performance. Uh, where does science really fit in? Two days leading to championships, mm. three days, that type of thing, on the day. And so it really crystallized in my mind what we're really trying to do. And for me, what we're really trying to do is just execute when it matters most. Mm. That's it. Um, so I think being, being in different roles, doing different things, seeing, seeing the competition environment, from a different lens makes a huge difference about how you then approach maybe a conversation in November after a treadmill okay, test I with see. an athlete because you you see it a bit different about right where's this going mm. and what are you going to have to deal with when you get there. So that's that's the way I would okay. kind of put it. It's, I think if you're if you're in the lab all the time, you you maybe get stuck in a way of thinking about lab numbers and mm. as opposed to being like right this person has to be able to do this on the track and. 
and actually in November it's actually worth having a conversation about you know fueling for the major championships that's okay. coming up because you know you might have seen when you got there that actually if they're doing this in April it's too late mm. type thing you know so it so changes your perspective on things it's what you're talking about there has been tactical in what you communicate how you influence yeah but we're also talking about making decisions under various different levels of, yeah. of pressure yeah um, I think um, a team team coach or or even if you're a practitioner it's very unusual for practitioners science practitioners to be involved in teams at that level mm -hmm. and it's mainly due to accreditations mm -hmm. and so the philosophy is generally always being look if you're a psychologist or a physiologist mm -hmm. whatever your job's done before you get there and that's just the way it is uh, whereas you know if you're doing coaching at that level it's, it's not really coaching it's managing emotions and people and uh, the physiologist has told you this is their warm-up or the nutritionist has said this is this and you go and deliver it and you say the right things at the right time and you keep your mouth shut at the other times um, and I think you learn that as you go you go through it and I think um, some of the best coaches that I've seen in the world aren't very good coaches on the day in competition whereas some of the best team staff are not necessarily the best coaches it's okay. the two different circumstantial yeah that in the moment in the championships it's a different type of person that you need mm. uh, compared to maybe what you need on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. Uh, there's some stat floating around uh, within British Athletics where it's like 50% uh, of athletes don't actually want the personal coach at championships because okay. that's not necessarily what they're good at. They're good at the day-to-day -day managing type stuff and then you need a different person. So um, some t that's where the science stuff kind of might fit in and you might need a different type of person that you might have taken to championships yeah. before. So it's, uh, yeah, I think that knowing when to talk and what to say and how to handle a certain situation is a big part of championships. Mm. It's not, uh, oh, you, you know, what's your tactics? They should have done all that before they got in. Yeah. Talking about getting to a major championships, you've got, you've got athletes, you've got focus on what they're going to be doing, how's the dynamic, yeah. how's the emotions. There's an awful lot of plate spinning or yeah. complexity there. How do you how do you focus on what matters? Or yeah. do you, do you it's a really good point, and I think it's like it's it's parents, it's agents, sponsors, yeah. it's the, the expectation of the crowd and the media. That that's not even scratching the surface of what that person's feeling and what they want. Um, and then you get you know, as a practitioner, you might have in the past gone, well, there's your nutrition plan or whatever. Right. And I don't think you really have any idea of what it takes to deliver that on the day when all this stuff's going on. Mm. But I think um, the, the best the best athletes and the best staff have probably been through that process a few times. Mm. So they're not necessarily, it's not new to them. So again, in, in athletics, you tend to find people who win medals have probably done at least one Olympics mm. previous to getting to that point. Because a lot of it you've just got to learn. A, a, a simple thing would be like, you know, when you how do you manage the food hall in the Olympic Village is a big part of mm. being an athlete there, you know, because you can put on a lot of weight, eat too much, and, <laughs> and staff as well, yeah? <laughs> uh, especially when you've got McDonald's in the place. Mm. But, you know, that's the complexity of people and things, and I think as practitioners or anyone who's working with athletes, knowing that actually this is quite complex, so keep it simple and make sure it's tried well and advanced and all that kind of stuff is really important. Um, but a lot of it's just managing other people and the madness that goes around athletes. And the other thing that's quite interesting is, so in um, London this year in 2017, we had 
37 endurance athletes. Um, so we, and they range from somebody who's winning gold medals to somebody who's making finals, somebody who's just qualifying out of the heats to yeah. somebody who's just going to learn and get experience. So you're, you're dealing with a whole range of emotions, people. And the bizarre thing about track and field is only really one or two people win stuff. Everybody else loses. Mm. So you're, you're trying to manage that as well in terms of people's emotions. And so it's a bizarre, bizarre experience, the championship environment. And I think practitioners who don't necessarily go there, particularly scientists, that's a whole different world that they, if they understand what goes on there, they'll be so much better at their jobs, mm. I think. And so what you're talking about there is sort of ratcheting up the experience level to better equip you for the next step. Yeah. Re- regardless of that, though, you you still have to perform still have under to perform. pressure. Yeah, and the pressure is still very real. Yeah. How do you keep a sense of perspective um, and keep your level head, if you do? Yeah, no, I, I, I tend to. And I think that's my kind of one of my key strengths, that I don't get uh, overly emotional or wrapped up in something. I'm quite focused on this is what we've got to do. We just do it. I guess one of my kind of the major things that I, I struggle with is that um, I forget what sport's all about. So I can get very um, so focused in on it that it's actually you forget about the drama and this this is what sport's actually meant to be about. Mm. The ups and the downs and the, the highs and the lows and all the rest of it is actually uh, that's the big thing I don't like about working in sports so much so intently that you miss that. Wouldn't it be great just to go and enjoy watching sport for what it is? Uh, so that that's the degree of like how focused you get that you just go right they're in the call room they've done this they've done that go and sit and watch it da 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 done you don't get that drama and all the okay. rest of it um, so but I think I, I think that's a big part of being in the environment that you've got to be able to go I'm not going to be the one that stresses you out I'm going to be the one that provides calm okay. and focus and clarity about what you're trying to do so when you're talking about managing others. Yeah. Obviously, you're in a leadership role, whether it's specifically head of endurance yep. or specifically team leader or yep. or actually demonstrating leaderful qualities in that, yep. that environment. Is that- yeah, you've you got... And I think um, the thing is about athletes in that environment, they're very vulnerable. Mm. So they're looking for... It's a bit like, you know, if you're on an airplane and it starts to get bumpy, first thing you do is look at the air hostess <laughs> and go, whoa, are they panicking? <laughs> I think it's a bit like that with athletes. It's they, They're looking at the leaders or the team yeah. coaches, whoever, to see, are they panicking? Are they worried about stuff? Any sign of stress or whatever, I think it, it really exposes them. And I think that's that's why a lot of athletes don't necessarily like personal coaches, whatever, because they're so invested yeah. into what they're doing that they can get stressy, they can get emotional. Okay. So I think it's hugely, hugely important that the way uh, this is one thing I've learned actually about leadership actually Every, everything you do your body language mm. the things that you say the people you speak to the people you don't speak to has a big impact because mm. people are looking at you and particularly in that environment with athletes they're, they're looking to see is the head coach a bit stressed maybe I should get stressed or they're worried about that maybe I should get worried about it so I think that leadership is so important to, to be demonstrating all the time we're, we're alright we're cool this is yeah. good you know, we just do what we need to do and that's it. So I think it's massively important. Okay, so I can see how your strength, your calm, your certainty, your um, sense of this is the way we need to be doing it. Yeah. I can see how that would operate well. When doesn't that um, I think you? Yeah, and it, and it goes back to this thing about humans and stuff. I think if you, you can get a bit like, uh, you can be over overly calm, okay. inhuman about some of the things you're doing because it's okay. like this is just what we've got to do 
you know, and I think that's one of the, the things that doesn't go so well. Sometimes you can get the tone wrong. Sometimes you can you can go too far that way where it's like, well, you're forgetting that this is sport and that you're humans mm. and you've got emotions and it's okay to win and yeah. lose and this type of thing. So I think that's when it doesn't go so well. A really good example is um, you, you, you can watch somebody in a race and they come back into the call room and you're kind of playing in your brain. It's like, are they going to be happy with that? Or are they going okay. to be yeah. upset about it? And you never really know. Uh, and a couple of times I've got that wrong when I've been like, oh, that's great, you know, well done. And they're actually, no, it was rubbish. It's right. not what I wanted. And you, you get it wrong because you, you're trying to play the game or you're trying to be mechanical about what you're doing. Uh, okay. You've not got the human thing. We've all made mistakes like that. Mm. Um, so that's when it doesn't go well is that you're a bit too mechanical. You're a bit too inhuman about some of your yeah. words or things that you don't say. Um, and sometimes somebody just wants a cuddle. You're like, we don't do cuddles. <laughs> Offering cuddles everywhere, yeah. like the hedgehog guy. Yeah. I, I'm so bad at not giving cuddles that my nickname last year at Champs was Head of Cuddles. <laughs> you can, they're asking you to dish out more cuddles. Yeah, like, the staff are like, nobody, you don't give anyone a cuddle. I'm like, well, I don't do cuddles. So my nickname within the endurance team was Head of Cuddles. Brilliant. Within the staff, yeah. So. So that importance of leadership and that importance of um, getting the tone right and so on. You talked there a little bit about some of your, some of the little mistakes. If you had a little time machine that you could pop mm. into and repair one of the mistakes that you've made over the years, what God, would it that's be? That's a tough question, that. I think, um, like, I, so I generally don't do regrets. Like, I, 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 again, I'm very scientific about decision making and stuff. So I'm really comfortable with, um, doing something that in, in hindsight might not have been the right thing, but as long as I've gone through a process, I'm really comfortable that I can get it wrong mm. and I just learn from it. And then I don't think there's been anything major that I would get in a time machine and go, oh my God, I wish I could go back. Maybe maybe an extra, you know, having that extra glass of wine the night before or something, it's not <laughs> such a good idea. But I think um, for me is, again, it's just this idea of just remember what this is all about and don't get, you know, try and enjoy the journey a bit more. Okay. Because I think you're constantly striving to be part of something, then you're part of something and you're successful and you're constantly thinking about the next thing instead of actually isn't this just amazing to be part of this right now. And I think that's my biggest regret perhaps is that I haven't necessarily enjoyed it as much as I should have. I've not seen the highs and lows for what they are. Um, I think, again, becoming quite mechanical about okay, you want another medal, great, or you were stuffed in the media, oh, that's terrible. It's like, you, you, yeah. you don't, you just become quite middle ground to everything. And I think that's my biggest thing is, and I, I constantly try to do this with myself now, because I am still a young man, I've hopefully still got a bit of a career, but even if I go back 10 years, it would have been just enjoy it and right. be a bit more like aware that this, this is just sport and there's highs and there's lows and enjoy mm. it for what it is. For me, that would be the biggest one. Okay, so that's almost a bit of a travel back in time and coach your younger yeah. self. That's an Obi-Wan yeah. Kenobi, use the force. Yeah. Oh, enjoy it, yeah, Enjoy it, don't get stressed <laughs> by this. It's like, it's normal, it's like highs right. and lows. And uh, I think over the time of being in sport at that level, you realize that, that it's just, there's always gonna yeah. be ups, there's always gonna be downs. And you know, how you, how you approach them is up to you mm. to decide and you can actually go, you know, it's a bad day, but that's just part of what we do and I'm going to learn from it and move on. Or you can be really stressed by it and affect the people around you and all the rest of it. So for me, it, the, the biggest thing I probably 
talk or coach myself on that. I was just you know, enjoy it. It's good to yeah. be part of this, and whether we win or lose, it doesn't. It's you know there are consequences, but enjoy what you're doing. It's important. Yeah. So cut that privileged position of yeah, working in sport. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, Anyone who works in sport uh, at any level is very privileged, but particularly with people who go on and do amazing things, mm. uh, I think you're massively privileged to be part of it. So that's that sounds like a, a great internal inner coaching that you're doing there and, and um, advice that you're giving to your younger self. But And so that's you, and that's particular to you. And if you... Yeah. If you are able to transmit a message to others yeah. about how how we all work, what would yeah. be one of your sort of key lessons that you'd want to share about how we all work, live, perform? I think uh, no matter who you are and where you work and what you do, I think it's important to try and try and find the thing that gives you purpose and gives you gives you passion. Um, we've all been through phases of your working life or whatever where you're like, I'm not sure why I'm doing this. Mm. Uh, I think working with sports men and women who are at a very high level, they, the thing I've learned is they know 100% why they're doing what they're doing, mm. how they got into it, why they're here, why they're killing themselves, and they'll enjoy the highs and they'll, you know, the lows will happen. And I think it's the same for anyone, no matter what they do, it's like, just harps back to that, um, finding the purpose, your why, whatever it might be, and then enjoying it, being comfortable with where you're at, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, because it's just part of the journey. Mm. And you know, in, in six months' time, things might change, and your thoughts and feelings might change. Mm. But as long as I always try and say to myself, I coach myself to go into it with, just enjoy it. I don't know what's coming up in the next six months. Um, I don't know what athletes are going to do, and what the media is going to say, and what selections we're going to do, or whatever, and what money we are, and not are going to get or not going to get for training camps mm. but I just I've, I've come to learn that that's just part of what we do yeah. and just enjoy it so your encouragement for others is about actually finding your purpose yes. and being content with that yeah. I, I, that in, a, in itself is a tactic to, to not get caught up in the anxiety of the moment yeah. and to actually see a bigger yeah see it for what it is yeah. you know it's not and most of it's like it's not personal to you it's like mm. this. Just take yourself out of it and and kind of go. Ah, this is just kind of the landscape that we work in, or whatever, mm. and and enjoy it. Um, but again, I mean, I, I might be coming from a very kind of biased, privileged position of working in that le- that level, but it does come with its challenges. Mm. And I think there's probably more lows than there are highs. But that again, if it's like if you know what you're doing it for, it's not it's not such a big deal yeah. either way. Mm. Well, I think that that pulse of performance for, for most people in business and education, the lows might be... They're um, always going to be there. They're, they're always going to be there. Yeah. And in performance sport, the highs are very high. Very high. And they yeah. can be quite yeah. big lows too, yeah. in that sense. Yeah. yeah. So you're um, encouraging other people to find their purpose. What are you championing looking forward? Yeah, so my... Um, it, again, it's, it's evolved over the years about... You know what I might be trying in my brain to think about and what I'm doing but for me uh, within the program that I work in now one of the big things that I've been pushing is this thing called own the start line mm. and, I, and I actually think this this works in life as well as sport and particularly track and field it's this idea of looking ahead to what you want to achieve so if, if, if I'm talking to an athlete who wants to win a medal in Tokyo I'll say to them well think about 
What will that look like standing on the start line in that race in Tokyo? What would you have had to have done to be super confident about everything you're doing? Whether it's a training session or your diet or the number of training trips that you do or the lifestyle that you create for yourself, whatever it is, and work your way back. Where are we now? Mm. And I think, I think that works in life and in uh, sport, this idea of what, what's it really going to take and what do I need to, where am I now to get to where I need to be? And so that, for me, um, the thing that drives me on at the minute is this idea of creating these little environments that people can believe in to own the start line in Tokyo. And that's coaching, science, medicine, technology, whatever it is, is what are the things that we need to do? And that really drives me on. Um, and, and I love posing that question to people to say, what does it look like on the start line for you to be like, mm. I'm going to win this today? Uh, and that's a really interesting... For me, it's a, it's a great way to plan because it's like it gets the brain going and you can draw it on a board. And yeah. So that's the thing that I'm championing a lot now, particularly for the program, but also for individuals within it, whether it, even down to the T of saying to coaches, if you're going to deliver performance in Tokyo, what would you have had to have done personally and in your program to get you there? Um, so for me, that's, that's the big thing that I'm championing now, mm. is what's it really going to take? So own the start line so I've got a real self-confidence I've done everything I can the inner record is re- yeah. really strong of working back from that start line and thinking how you yeah. create that so that it's it's strong mentally physically yeah and the, the real unique thing about it is if nobody has the same answer no, right. so they all come at it from a different thing some people it's like if I do this workout 10 days before the championships I know we'll be ready all right, so let's break it down. If you need to do that workout 10 days out, what would you have needed to have done here, here, and here to get to there? And that's where it works. Some people will be, um, I've got to have, uh, I've got to have this mental plan leading in from two weeks in, one week in. All right, so that's really important we get that right. But we only have one opportunity before then to do it in a championship, so let's not wait until after then. So everyone has a unique thing some people would be like, well, I need to have my dad in the stand over there. Stuff like that. It's amazing what it throws up, what people, what people believe they need. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, as, a, as, a, like a, as an organisation that is supported by science and medicine, it's very easy to just fall back on some of those things as opposed to actually I need this right in my life and I need to be mm-hmm. living here and I need to be doing that. And so it's, it's a really interesting way of approaching it. And you get some unique answers about what people believe they need to have done. Yeah. And then when you when you kind of when you marry it all up with like what it takes to win model or a determinants type model of what it really takes. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know you, you have to finish in fifty two seconds for four hundred. That would be a they might not actually do it. But then as a as a science or coaching team, you might go. But you still have to finish in fifty two seconds. So, what what does that look like? Tell okay. us tell us how you're going to get there with that. Um, so it's quite an interesting mm. concept. Um, yeah, very good. Own the start line. It's a fantastic philosophy that drives you forward. Yeah, and, and um, I can imagine how for athlete staff, just the question and just the idea yeah. um, looks. It's constructive. It's positive. Looking forward. Um, fantastic. It's a bit corny, but I think it works well. As corny as the Brits can get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Well, Barry, thank you so much. Really fascinating stuff. No problem. Brilliant. Thank you, Barry.
You can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and at support underscore champs. And you can subscribe to these podcasts on iTunes, through YouTube and through supportingchampions.co.uk. Don't forget to have a look at the Facebook site. We're building the community around these podcasts at Supporting Champions on Facebook. 